Welcome, everyone, to the AI and Business Podcast. I'm Matthew DeMello, Senior Editor here at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research. Today's guest on the program is Asif Hassan, co-founder of Quantify. Quantify is an AI-first digital engineering company that designs AI-driven services and platforms for broad applications across industries. In conversation with Emerge CEO and Head of Research Daniel Fagella, Asif explores the potential of large language models with pragmatic explanations of how the technology works. Throughout, he underscores that the costs of cognitive work are about to plummet thanks to the impact of this technology. Without further ado, here's their conversation. So, Asif, welcome to the program. Dan, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, I mean, we've got a very timely topic to unpack today and one that you guys are diving into head first, which is large language models. So much to cover. I want to start with the connection to ROI because a buzzword is a buzzword, but our listeners obviously are interested in the business value. When you sort of look at large language models today, where do you believe the biggest sort of workflow impacts and ROI impacts are likely to come from at kind of a high executive level? So in order to answer your question uh, on the ROI impact, what we need to ask is, what is the most fundamental economic metric that generative AI will impact? And when you cut through all of the noise, what you, know, what you find is that generative AI will bring the marginal cost of performing a cognitive task, which I believe is the most basic unit of human productivity, down sustainably in the coming years, just the way Moore's law was cutting the cost of compute by a factor of two every 18 months. And the reason this is happening now is because even though machines were able to see things, hear things, understand language, recognize patterns, and this has been happening over the last five to seven years, in the pre-generative AI paradigm, a model would have to be custom built to perform a very specific task using supervised learning. And this used to be both cumbersome and expensive. Now, what generative AI has shown is that you can pre-train a large language model to perform a fundamental task, like predicting the next token in a sequence of words or predicting the next pixel in an image. And now with this foundation model, you can use this as a substrate in an AI system and fine tune this model inexpensively to perform a huge variety of tasks. So when you look at the next one to two years, you know we will see many examples of task level disruptions. And what I mean by that is to use the human plus AI combination to perform the exact same task that a human agent is currently performing, but just do it better, faster, cheaper, or all of the above. And the examples of this type of work include customer service agent following a call script and responding to a customer based on some you know, knowledge base material that they have, or a paralegal reviewing a commercial contract and redlining it based on some organizational standard or even a developer writing code to fulfill some specifications or user stories. And these are areas where we'll see some sort of substitution of generative AI, and this will unfold before us in the next 12 to 24 months. However, the much bigger ROI impact will be seen when we see a system-level disruption. So here, we are not using AI to do the same task, better, faster, cheaper. Here, we are combining AI capabilities in novel ways to fulfill the same customer needs, but in entirely new ways. And this disruption is more a business model level disruption. And I feel this will take three to five years. So imagine if a team of 
10 to 12 highly creative people enabled by text to video models can create studio quality movies and TV shows. At a task level, we are already starting to see some rudimentary examples of this happening now, but changing the industry structure of creating, distributing, and monetizing this type of content or navigating through all the intellectual property issues, changing consumer behaviors, and other structural changes will cause system level changes to happen over the next three to five years or longer. Man, there's so much to unpack here, Asif. I'd love to dive in if we could on some of this. Sure. So I'm with you on the task level, and you actually framed it pretty well to start. I'm going to start with you at task and then move up to system. Yeah. You had said something like the basic unit of human you know, productivity or something, which was something like the time it takes to do a cognitive task. What, what was the phrasing you used there? Because I want to reference that. Sure. So essentially what we are saying is that generative AI will bring the cost of performing a cognitive task down in a sustained way in the next mm -hmm. few years. And cognitive task, I feel, is the basic sort of unit of human productivity. So yeah. think about looking at an incoming email and making a decision of what to reply and, you know, looking at a, let's say, an x-ray image and, you know, getting to a conclusion that there's pneumonia in the lungs and those types of things, right? So that when I say cognitive task, it's seeing things, hearing things, interpreting, and then responding. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Got it. So, and there's an Andrew Ng article that touches on this, the, the title of which doesn't exactly come to mind, but I like this idea of this unit of productivity you're talking about. And just to, I'm going to try to make sure I'm understanding, and then I'm going to connect the dots with you. The task level augmentation automation here could be, if we go back to the making studio quality movies, like you said, the task level might be something like certain special effects where last year we would have had to you know, have a smoke machine and have different lighting setups and all these other things. And now we can have the same scene. And just with AI, we can boom, 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 have a bunch of different lightings, a bunch of different smoke effects, whatever. Maybe that's a, that's a single task. It's like one scene. But then the system level, if I'm understanding you right, this is where the whole movie might literally be able to be scripted out, shot, edited, you know, come up with permutations by a small team of people who are very, very augmented. Is this the right frame that you're thinking about, or how would you color that? Slightly different, than So Great. let's think about you know a task in that construct, right? So so let's say there is a movie. Now there is you need to create a trailer, some sort of sizzle reel, etc. Right. So with generative AI, you can say, hey, find the key moments and summarize this in like a three minute, right? And generative AI in today's environment is able to do that type of summarization quite well. And that is a task. Now, when we think of the business model, if you think about how movies are created today, who are the players, how is it distributed, and then how is it consumed by audiences? That, I feel, is going to be a system-level disruption. Let me just take another example. You know, when, when mobile phones first came out, one of the first casualties we saw was you know, the GPS devices we used to hook up in our yes, cars, yes, right? Yes, cars. Yes. Yep. Now you get turn-by-turn -turn directions, but in the mobile phone, you're also able to get turn-by-turn -turn directions. So those devices started to disappear. That's a task-level disruption. And the task is turn-by-turn -turn directions. Now, system-level disruption is something like Uber, which says, hey, you know, I will disrupt, I'll combine the same capabilities of 
a smartphone, right? The real-time tracking and GPS and you know accelerometer and those those types of capabilities. But then I'll disrupt the entire transportation mobility industry. Got it. So when I say system, I mean that almost like an industry level as opposed to a workflow level. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we could probably have a three-hour conversation about the future of programmatically generated content. You mentioned the movie example. I see a world where nobody is watching analog media. In other words, media that was created for everybody. They're literally watching the action movie, the comedy, the relaxing documentary, whatever, precisely based on their biofeedback, their past preferences, whatever. And I do think that there's an absolute evisceration of media as we know it today that's upcoming. But let me just get into your thoughts about how we go from task to system, because those are big jumps. And these are huge innovations that we're talking about. When I look out into the enterprise today, and you work with a lot of the big boys in terms of enterprise companies here, so you, you see a lot of this too. There is... an understanding that they need to level up. And there's also a little bit of a trepidation because, you know, we've got all these team members and maybe I've got a fiefdom. And if I go from 200 to 20 people, I feel less important. Or maybe maybe I honestly feel like it's morally not good or whatever. We kind of look out and see, all right, there's going to have to be a bottom-up set of innovations where where really those tasks are getting automated quite well. And then there's going to have to be outside forces that make it not just worthy for us to play with AI in the corner, but it's going to feel necessary for us to literally survive. So we, we kind of think in order for enterprises to get to system level, they're going to have to not only experiment and try it, but actually look around them and say, oh my goodness, we're going to lose unless we jump into this pool. What do you think is going to take us from task to system? Because this is a big jump here. Yeah. So I think what will take us from task to system level is, I mean, the same set of things that, you know, in, in the previous, you know, paradigms has taken us from task to, to system. So let's just continue with uh, the smartphone. Yeah, example. yeah, yeah, great. It's like there will be, you know, new entrants coming up with new set of ideas like Uber that said, hey, you know what? I can actually disrupt the entire transportation mobility industry by combining the capabilities of the mobile phone in interesting ways, right? So. It might be just the competition within the incumbent players, but that's quite unlikely. I think what will have to happen for system level disruption is sort of this dynamic between attackers and incumbents, right? So there's the, yes. so the disruptors coming in with, with strong funding and sponsorship from these VC institutions, and then looking at that sort of digital native dynamic and then trying to adapt to that dynamic by taking advantage of natural competitive advantage that, that incumbents currently have. So I think it's that sort of dynamic that I feel is going to take us from the task level to a system level. Yeah, the tension from the inside and out, and again, not just from incumbents, but from the startups. And I think there's going to be some really fast-moving players that are going to eat some enterprise lunches in the next couple of years ahead, and that'll be exciting to follow. I'm really glad we got to zoom out and think not just about making movies, but even new ways to consume them. And I I like the cell phone analogy that we're getting into here. And speaking of those analogies, I mean, it makes me think a little bit about, you know, specific concrete use cases. You touched on a couple, you know, you met, you had mentioned, you know, this idea of, you know, legal being able to redline and identify things, something about a call center agent who's working off a script, working off of an FAQ, handling customer questions in chat or on the phone. What are some concrete examples that could paint a little bit of a before and after picture 
that you think maybe could be illustrative for other executives? Sure, of course. So this is a question that we have had to think through before we get into any customer briefing so we can help them envision a very practical set of applications and construct a strong line of sight to an ROI. And the mental model we've used to help customers uncover impactful use cases basically to think about three things. Number one is to envision areas in a customer's business where AI is nearing or breaching human levels of performance. So that's like, you know, AI taking the bar exam or, you know, taking the U.S. medical licensing exam. The second is where the tasks being performed in the customer's environment are both repetitive and expensive. So that's the second. And then the third is where tasks can be documented into a simple set of written instructions. And we've been doing lots of these briefings lately. And the pattern that has emerged so far is at the most basic level is the use case of just enabling knowledge workers to navigate their professional lives more efficiently. So what I mean here is, for example, replying to email, drafting a document, creating a presentation, answering question, looking at a simple data grid or spreadsheet. And here we're already seeing glimpses of generative AI applications like Office 365 Copilot or even Duet AI for Google Workspace that was just announced last week at Google I.O. And I believe these applications will start permeating our lives almost by default without any major programmatic changes happening within organizations. And over time, I feel just this alone will drive a meaningful productivity gain. So that's that's one. The second category of use cases will come from the automation of horizontal business processes, such as the customer service function I talked about where the agent is following a call script and responding to a customer query based on some content in the knowledge base, or even an accounts payable rep processing an invoice based on some standard operating procedures, some approval checks, et cetera, that they've been asked to do. And then here, the overall mental model is what functions exist in an organization where work has been outsourced to far off locations and examine if this can be done better, faster, cheaper with generative AI. So in, in general, you know, I feel this type of work becomes a good candidate use case for generative AI because organizations have already had to document their procedures and processes in the process of outsourcing, right? So that's that's the, the second category. The third, and I feel the most important category of use cases, are going to come from critically examining long and expensive steps within the value chain of an industry, and then reimagining how this can be done better with generative AI. And the best example I can think of here is in the life sciences domain where generative AI is helping accelerate the most time-consuming and costly stages of drug discovery. So example, you know, NVIDIA has released a service called BioNemo and a chemical AI foundation model called MegaMolbart. And this can help the drug discovery researchers, number one, identify the right target, number two, design molecules and proteins, and number three, predict the interactions to develop the best drug candidate. Now, if you look at this process today, drug discovery costs range anywhere from a billion to two and a half billion dollars per drug. And that can take over five years in the best case. So you can start to imagine what can happen when you get through the process of first discovering a target, then screening the molecule, then getting to a head, and then getting to the most promising compound, followed by in vitro and in vivo tests to check the safety of the compound, and all of this happening in a matter of months, not years. 
So across many industries, there are similar examples of long expensive steps in the value chain that I feel are ripe for some sort of acceleration with generative AI. So this is the final category of use cases we will see in action. But I feel this is the category of use cases that will have the most profound impact on business. And when you start to sort of think about the task level versus system level dynamic, this third category of long, expensive value chain steps is where the, the attack vector of the, you know, the incoming you know, digital natives is going to be. Absolutely. I, I, I like this lens a lot. And I hope you guys have an article about this, frankly, because I think this sort of this one, two, three set of categories is, is a very clean way of thinking about things. Clearly, we're stretching ourselves into what system level transformation will require, which to your point, is very different than let's take our BPO and let's just get rid of them because we have AI now. That's that's not really transformation, right? That's That's automation. And you and I are well aware that AI and automation have been synonymous in many crowds in the enterprise, but I think they're going to have to grow beyond that as LLMs sort of enter the fray. So let's do this. I want to kind of unpack maybe one example in the, let's call it kind of the outsource category, and then maybe we'll do another value chain example. I like the drug dev one. We can unpack that. I'm thinking on this sort of outsource BPO side, I'm imagining some of the really mundane stuff that maybe we do for insurance paperwork where we have to, you know, check signatures on contracts or validate different bits of information across different bumbling PDFs and databases and whatever else. Is this the kind of thing you're talking about in that case? Yeah, I mean, I can take three, four examples here, Dan. So, you know, when you're opening like a new account in an institution, the know your customer checks, right? But yep. you have to say, you yeah. know, identification, etc. to prove that you're who you say you are. That's one. You can get more sophisticated than that. There's, you know, when, let's say, you're getting a, a mortgage on a new house, you have to submit just a whole variety of documents with, you know, your tax returns and pay stubs and all those types of things. And, and you know, there are people sitting in offshore locations that are parsing out all of this content, plugging it into some, you know, internal information system, etc., and then moving it to, a, uh, to an underwriter who can assess the risk and then say, okay, here's the rate we can offer and that type of stuff, right? So, so that's that's another example. If you think about, you know, the capital markets domain, there's a lot of equity research that happens and, and you know, there's, you know, middle office folks sitting looking at the 10K uh, filings of companies and then just kind of summarizing that into important things that they can pass on to equity research analysts, the more senior analysts, et cetera, to develop a point of view on. So this sort of, you know, task of summarization and looking at the fine print and maybe highlighting a few risks here and there. Those are the types of things that are perfect candidates in all yeah. of these operations have been sort of outsourced to a certain extent across multiple industries. So I think we can look at, you know, both horizontal processes like I described, customer service, invoicing, payroll, that type of stuff, as well as, you know, these industry-specific scenarios like, you know, middle office and, you know, some equity research summarization or, or you know, loan underwriting or, you know, claims, payment, et cetera, yeah. IC, all of those things. Got it. So hopefully our, our audience is kind of getting a good idea here. And, and these are all tasks that, to your point before, 
you know, someone's already documented a process. We've got a set of videos they watch. We have a set of checklists they go through. We have a set of good examples and bad examples of what it looks like when you summarize this equity insight, when you fact check some various and sundry know your customer, you know, workflow or what have you. It's already kind of been mapped out. So that might be the low hanging fruit. Of course, that stretches yeah. us, stretches us into the bigger value chain disruption stuff. You know, you brought up life sciences. There's, so much we could talk about about just that example that you had there of, okay, maybe we use large language models to find the right, you know, protein targets. We use large language models to figure out maybe past proteins or molecules we've discovered and then figure out how they might help us attack a current problem that we're going after based on correlations between symptoms and whatever else. And all of this kind of deep searching really was quite hard with NLP as it used to be. I suspect as we start getting rid of some hallucinations, it'll become really the only way to search reliably in some of these things. Are there any other big sort of heavy, complicated value chain transformative kind of processes that might help people imagine? What else do you like to think about? So I've discussed multiple steps in financial services, in healthcare and life sciences. I think broadly, industry value chain wise, any sort of area where there is good scientific R&D happening, these would also be good candidates because just, you know, the example that I gave in the life sciences domain, right? Yes. There are not language models that are trained on English language per se, right? These are models that are trained on on gene sequences and and you know nucleotides and and how they sort of project into protein shapes etc so looking at not just language as you know a medium of exchange but the language of science and yeah. you know things and training language models there as well i feel is going to be a pretty interesting area wow yeah it's 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 wild how that works right i mean getting in kind of under the hood at, at how llms operate that it's it's not simply putting together strings of English text, it's scientific terminology, it's all kinds of data that can be turned into a kind of language where we can do this sort of advanced autocorrect and kind of build something plausible based on it. So huge amounts of transformation there. Anything that you can organize in a sequence is something that these generative pre-trained architectures can potentially impact. So we've had some conversations with customers who are essentially looking at consumer behavior on an e-commerce platform, you know, that's a sequence of, you know, points and clicks on, on a web page. And why can't you train, you know, a language model to predict the next action just based on how they have sort of covered their journey so far, right? So these are all like really good areas to explore and see if the paradigm of generative pre-trained models can fit this and actually, you know, improve our capabilities to predict the next time step. Because, you know, in trying to understand how to predict the next time step, what the, the language model is really doing is trying to understand the nature of reality that predicted that next step, right? So it, it just sort of becomes a very interesting way to organize how we think about problems. Yeah. And there's a man, there's an entire philosophical chapter we could get into about predicting the nature of reality that would indicate that next step. And I know the people that are trading stocks right now are really got their fingers crossed. This is going to affect their world as well. This leads me to sort of 
get my brain turning here around how to think about adoption, you've already laid out some really important building blocks of different categories of use cases to consider and getting people to look across this strata from task to system level disruption. There's a lot of potential places to start here. What advice would you have for enterprise leaders who want to consider large language model adoption? Maybe some of them it's foolhardy and they're thinking about too much and they're not ready for it. Maybe for others, they're not thinking big enough. What would you advise for leaders? So Dan, this is a very common question we get asked. It's, it's a topic of discussion with almost every customer during the initial stages of our engagement. We've distilled it down to six discrete things that enterprise leaders need to keep in mind about LLM adoption. So first and foremost, they need to understand what is this new paradigm of generative AI and how is this different from the older paradigm of supervised training of task-specific models. And this is what I had explained earlier when I said that generative AI helps build pre-trained foundation models that can then be quickly and inexpensively fine-tuned to perform hundreds or even thousands of tasks. And this makes the technology much more accessible and cost-effective. So that's one. Second, they need to have a strong viewpoint on the business implications of generative AI. So specifically, what are the exact leverage points in their value chain and business model where generative AI will make the biggest impact. We talked about that earlier. How can it drive more frictionless customer interactions? How can it help drive reduction in operating costs? How can it help improve productivity of knowledge workers? How can it help uncover risks that were previously not visible? And most importantly, how can it help them bring entirely new products and services to market, right? So that's, that's number two. Number three is they need to have a viewpoint on how they will build, deploy, and lifecycle manage large-scale AI systems within their organization. So what sort of programmatic investment will they need to make? What is the right mix of outside expertise and in-house talent? They need to groom to drive these programs forward. They also need to be very intentional about the technology partners they want to work with and what is the right mix of proprietary versus open source technology they need to have in their stack. How will they cross-train and enable their workforce on generative AI? And most importantly, how will they encourage a culture of curiosity and experimentation and risk-taking in these teams? Because in the initial stages, these initiatives are necessarily going to be experimental in nature. So that's number three. The fourth is they need to think about data requirements. And this is where generative AI is very different from task-specific models, right? So in the older paradigm, one had to ensure access to high-quality labeled data to train task-specific models. But by contrast, in generative AI, companies need to think about data in two different ways. The first is having their organization's data accessible to the AI system to use as context. And this can be done by just you know, getting a vector DB, extracting, embedding, storing these in a vector DB for fast and accurate retrieval. And once this data is passed to the AI systems as context, the model will start giving very, very grounded, accurate, and enterprise-specific results. The second type of data they need to think about is fine-tuning data. This is the data on which foundation models are fine-tuned. And so when you think about fine-tuning, there are two types of fine-tuning. Supervised fine-tuning is something that helps the model learn the language of your specific business. And then there's instruction fine-tuning that, that helps the model learn to perform specific tasks like generating a patient encounter summary in healthcare 
or redlining a, a contract in a legal firm. And this is where organizations will need to curate and manage a repository of high quality data because fine tuning is what will make the difference in the quality of responses from the AI. Right. So that's that's number four. Number five is the role of champions. So who are the people in the org who should be asked to champion this effort? And you know, these can be at the departmental level or an enterprise level. And these are folks who are true believers in the power of AI and are willing to let the team experiment, fail, learn, and evolve. And at the same time, they are the ones who have a real feel for the business, who don't need some sort of spreadsheet-based ROI model to prove to them that there is value. And they have to be sort of on the front lines and, and leading these types of efforts. And perhaps the most important thing to keep in mind as the sixth item is the ethical considerations around generative AI. So leaders need to ensure transparency, fairness, accountability in, in how this technology is deployed. So ethical considerations will include preventing potential misuse of generative AI, ensuring proper governance and addressing appropriate use of AI. And with every passing day, it's becoming clearer and clearer that generative AI is not meant to replace human productivity, but to augment it. And, and is that the spirit with which these initiatives are being driven in the organization? And I know, Dan, that's a lot to unpack with these leaders, but that is what we would love AI-powered business will demand from them. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, we, we talk about it all the time, and you're kind of cracking open some very particular considerations here around LLMs, I think, that are useful for leaders to hear. We talk all the time about the requirement of enterprise AI fluency among leaders. So just some some fundamental understanding of the range of relative use cases, how the technology works, and you're even bringing up slightly more specific things around who we're going to select as champions, how to consider these fine-tuning elements of our data, they're going to bring these LLMs to life. As we sort of wrap up thinking about, so we've been very clear here with our audience, very hard to go in blind, throw a dart at a wall of some LLM use case and hope it's going to work out. We've really got to have context. We have to have champions. We have to know how the tech works. I think everybody needs to hear that. I'd love to know, as we close, a little bit of your vision of how you think this will come to life. We've had a number of speakers in different industries from life sciences to insurance, you know, $50 billion companies talk about where they think this is going to land. For some, they, they see a world where, to your point, large enterprise firms have their own trained LLM on their kind of language, lingo, and expertise area, kind of broad level. This is how we speak when we write, when we talk to customers. This is our our language, our subject matter expertise, maybe it's wealth management, maybe it's healthcare issues, whatever. And then also that refined kind of training, and they'll have kind of a central core model that hopefully will grow and train with time. Maybe they're doing it open source or they're they're pulling in from one of the big players. And then they're running that specialized version of that that thing with a slice on this task and on this task and on this task. When you look forward at the future, do you envision it that way, or would you want to frame it differently for enterprise leaders thinking about their future? Yeah. You know, I think there is enough uncertainty in terms of how this is evolving where, you know, we can't make a definitive bet one way or the totally, other. But, totally. but, you know, let me, let me give you my viewpoint. Right? Okay. So here's what I think. The foundation models, right, these large language models with, you know, let's say 100, 150, 200 plus billion parameters, or maybe even an order of magnitude or two higher, 
this is not going to be within the purview of every large enterprise to sort of roll their own, right? So there will be organizations that are providing these foundation models, and increasingly they will be multimodal so that they can do, you know, images and videos and text and, and data grids and all, all different varieties of data. And that will be used as a substrate. And it should be used as substrate. Because really, I think sort of the value creation layer on top of that for an organization is going to be based on the fine-tuning that they do, right? So I talked about supervised fine-tuning, and that's essentially teaching the model the language of your enterprise, right? So there's like a whole variety of three-letter acronyms that are, you know, mean one thing in one organization, right? And that model needs to have context about that language. Otherwise, it will give incorrect results, right? So when I say supervised fine-tuning, it essentially takes, you know, the foundation model and it will actually modify the weights within the foundation model or add additional layers to teach the model the language of a specific business, right? So that's that's one level. So they will have to be very, very good at supervised fine-tuning to teach the model language of their business. The second is going to be instruction fine-tuning. So teaching the model to do certain tasks. Now, out-of-the-box foundation models will come with the ability to do certain tasks like reply to an email, generate a tweet, or you know, summarize an article, et cetera. So that's, that's general purpose. But let's say that you're a biopharma organization and you are, you know, now you've sort of gone through the process of drug discovery that I just, you know, that, that we just unpacked. Now you have to actually take it through the FDA process. In order to do that, there is a clinical trial protocol that has to be written. And that's generating a cl clinical trial protocol is a very, very unique task in the value chain. Today, it takes, you know, maybe collaboration between two dozen people across six months, et cetera, to generate a protocol which says, hey, here's the size of my clinical trial. You know, here's the control arm. Here's the dosage. And, you know, here's what to do when, when certain adverse reaction happens and all that type of stuff, right? So you have to train a model to be able to respond to the task of saying generate a clinical trial protocol given this context is an example of a very sophisticated instruction fine-tuning step, right? So supervised fine-tuning, make the model learn the language of your business. Instruction fine-tuning, teach it new tricks, new tasks that are specific to your domain. Organizations will need to spend their time in these domains a lot more than the foundation model domain. That's at least my hypothesis. Got it. Well, yeah, I, I don't think everybody's going to have the compute resources to spin up what OpenAI can spin up. So I, I, I would certainly argue it's going to be tough for them to, to innovate at that base level. But yes, that the customization without a doubt. So this is, I think, a good future vision here for our enterprise listeners to tune in. We went a little bit into overtime on this, Asif, but I, I love getting your perspective on that, sort of thinking about where are we going to have to spend our time to actually turn this stuff into value. 
And adoption is what we're trying to do here on the show is encourage exactly that. So Asif, I know that's all we had for time, but it was a real pleasure being able to, to dive in with you. Thanks so much for being able to join us today. Likewise, likewise, Dan. I think I added one of your posts where you were talking about technical differentiation versus like domain depth and context. Yes, yes, yes. This is going to be for most organizations. I think the value creation is going to be a lot about context. Uh Right. So I think it sort of converges really well with that theme. Well, very, very rarely do we end an episode with somebody mentioning something friendly about one of my LinkedIn posts. But I appreciate that, Asif. And, and I'll, I'll maybe we'll link that up in the show notes somewhere. But otherwise, we'll, we'll obviously link to Quantify as well. Thank you again so much for being with us today. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Dan. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Wrapping up today's episode, I would like to draw everyone's attention to Emerge.com, the front page, where you can find an article boiling down the key insights from the interview featured on today's episode, written by one of our esteemed writers, Ria Pahuja. One of those key insights probably should be what Asif has to say about cognitive work, because I think that was especially prescient for this episode. And going into this next phase, we'll be seeing from large language models on the cusp of a marketplace for bespoke models from industry to industry, organization to organization. It's really something that's on the horizon right now. On behalf of Daniel and the entire team here at Emerge, thanks so much for joining us today. And we'll catch you next time on the AI in Business podcast. <laughs>